Welcome to Inclusive Disruption, the Charlotte Sweeney Associates podcast where meaningful conversations collide with expert insights, hosted by me, Charlotte Sweeney, OBE. We delve into the minds of leaders and specialists who drive cultural change in organizations with a specific focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We explore diverse viewpoints and perspectives, all aimed at unleashing more inclusive cultures. So today I am delighted to be with David Simmons, who is the chairman of HCM Metrics. You know, we've had so many conversations on this podcast around evidence-led approaches. I think we're going to have a bit of a masterclass around this, given the role that David does. Um, So welcome, David. Thank you. Charlotte, it's delightful to be with you. I am so looking forward to this, David. I know we have such great conversations when we're together, and I think it's only fair and right to share some of that knowledge that you've got um, a little bit wider in our community. Um, The first question I'm going to ask you, very similar to the question I ask many people, is tell me a little bit about you and also why you do what you do. I've been in HR all my life, but I am delighted to be able to enable change. Um, My passion, no, no, my destiny in life is to help individuals, teams and organisations fulfil their potential. And I've been privileged to have been able to do that in telecoms, health, education, financial services, um, IT. Uh, I I did that as an employee and then as a subcontractor. Uh, I became a partner and a director. Then I became a consultant and did all those kind of things around the world. And I've worked on six continents. And uh, and so I've been working with people from many, many different diverse backgrounds. And I love to meet them, to embrace their culture. I love their food and their music. And their, it's, it's fantastic. And what is it about HR that you wanted to start your career in it? Because you've mentioned there that that was effectively your destiny, your purpose, if you like. What is it about it? I've mostly worked at the development change end of the spectrum. I can do talent acquisition um, and, and, and obviously health and safety and diversity and stuff. I don't do compensation and benefits, but I do enjoy helping people to work and helping organizations to help them to work. Um, and the working place and the future work, we spend a lot of our time in the workplace. But in the end, it's about people. And uh, people are fascinating. And I want to be able to help people to help themselves. Great. And I think one of those areas, and I'm sure this has been a, a thread that's run through your career, given you know the change elements you talked about, this whole evidence-led approach and metrics and measures, and especially given the role as as chairman in an organization that focuses on this. Um, I'm curious about your views, and I know we'll jump into a lot of different areas of this. HR are usually, in many occasions, criticized for the lack of data or the lack of focus around data. Um, What's what's your perspective on that? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. The future, I think, has to be evidence-based. I'm doing a PhD at the moment on evidence-based HR in the University of London. Um, I think the days are being counted when we can get away with it anymore just by telling stories or giving our opinions. Um, 
for many, many years, people in HR, they've been saying, I want a seat on the board. Not realizing that at that level in the C-suite of the board, they have a different language, which is graphs and charts and numbers and spreadsheets. And if we're going to hold our heads up high and improve and increase our reputation, along with our colleagues in marketing and finance, we need to embrace the numbers. And, and, and for me, the metrics, the analytics, the data, the, uh, organizations are awash with data. It, it's how we find the right data and interpret it and then present it. We're good at storytelling, and I don't think we should lose that, but we need to undergird it and underpin it with the data and the analytics that support the argument. Um, and, and personally, I think that um, we need to do that um, sooner rather than later. So, for example, in, 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 the, in the context of diversity and inclusion, um, there's, there's two, in my estimation, there's two broad schemes. One is compliance. We do it because we have to. And I, I'm not keen on that because that's threshold. That's what's the minimum? What can we get away with it? But the other approach is, okay, Let's see whether doing diversity and inclusion properly and equity and belonging, let, let's see, embrace those principles, those themes, and let's see what happens. And huge amounts of research has proven through the metrics that it hits the bottom line. It's no longer just a nice to have, it's a need to have. And, and that argument, I think, goes a long way with, 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 the, with the CEO and the CFO. You're absolutely right. There is so much data out there. Um, that that reconfirms in many many instances time and time again um, that you know the impact on business um, around creating a more diverse and inclusive workplace, and and at the same time you've talked about that desire that if we want a seat at the table, we've got to be more focused around the metrics. It's not purely around the stories and the sharing the lived experiences. Um, from from your point of view, are there any particular sectors that do this better than others? Well, that, that's a huge question. Not so much sectors. Um, the area which is of greatest need is the those organizations of which most people work, and that's the SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises, where, to be frank, HR is, is, is small and struggling. Uh, often it's just one person Within the large enterprise corporate sectors, I don't think there are any organizations which are necessarily better or worse, except the classic examples of the financial firms and the law firms in the city of London. Um, and But in the end, it's about organizational culture. The example I often discuss with, with HR managers is when people are being recruited, there's a, a, a monitoring form usually at the end of the application. And I said, well, what do you do with it? Oh, we put it in a filing cabinet somewhere. And I said, well, what's the purpose? Oh, well, we have to monitor it uh, against the population. And I said, well, which population is that? Is that the one near the office? Oh, well, um, and so, you know, the whole thing is shot through with lack of credibility. People mm. haven't thought it through. And how can we start to add up those numbers in those boxes if we don't even agree on what they mean. I go further. Yeah. People, because they have to, they look at the gender pay gap. Okay. I say, well, what about the ethnicity pay gap? 
They say, we haven't thought about that, mm-hmm. or we don't have to do that. Or I say, what about the disability pay cap? Mm. Oh, well, um, I'm sure we could get it from somewhere. It's it's unthought. It's, it's, um, it, it's cliche-ridden, and it's trivial and trite, honestly. Um, and then I say, okay, so you've got these numbers at, 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 um, when we recruit. That may be diversity. It may not be, but let's say it is. I said, what about inclusion? How do you measure that? Well, isn't that the same mm. thing? I said, well, actually, how diverse is the recruitment panel? How diverse is the board of directors? How diverse is the strategy committee? That's inclusion for me, uh, one mark of inclusion. Yeah. So um, there are metrics, and 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 um, if people wanted to to continue the conversation, I'm very happy to give um, lots of lots of references to books and and, and so on. Um, but there are metrics, and one of the ways that I use is through an international standard. Um, there are several international standards on HR, and several in particular on diversity, and the metrics are laid down. And then you can apply them across the board, across the world. And, and just thinking of that and those metrics and that standard, when you're working with organisations with that standard around here is the sort of information we need to be able to create an evidence-led approach to help us make really good decisions, where would you say many organisations are on that? I hate to say journey, but I am going to say it. Where do you think they are on that journey of pulling the data together or having the data available to be able to do that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's loads of data there. It's what they do with it and how they use it. They're early, they're early adopters in, in, in this journey. Um, some of them are, are better than others. Some of them have been on this journey longer than others. Some of the information and uh, the knowledge is better than others, but m- the vast majority of organisations are only really just about starting to get to grips with it and beginning to see the benefits of that. Um, there's a huge awareness raising piece that you and I and others need to, need to do in helping people to appreciate the organisational benefits, the financial benefits, the cultural, so this, uh, the social benefits of applying the readily available data to make strategic decisions. Yeah. And there's so many different avenues I could go down on some of the these these elements that you've mentioned, but I do want to touch on, um, you mentioned at the beginning around different parts of the business that do potentially have a seat at the table and do use data marketing as a, as a, as a great example around that, that is not, um, you know, that is more towards um, some of the aspects that we may consider within HR and, and the people agenda. So not very purely focused on the numbers. There is, there is more to it than that. Um, What is it you think we need to do further to increase the perception of HR, people and culture teams, et cetera, within organizations? Is it purely about the data or is it something wider than that? It, it, it must include the data um, and it's got to be data-driven, it's got to be evidence-based. But let's assume for argument's sake that the, the HR director, the SVP of people and culture is on the board and, and, and the board are discussing the future strategy 
one to three years. I think longer than three years doesn't work these days. So they're saying, right, what should we do? Should we expand? Should we contract? Should we offshore or outsource? Should we increase our market? Or should we diversify our, our, our product and service range? These are big questions. And every time those discussions are had, the HR director, SVP of People and Culture will say, great, that's fine. Who do you need? And how many? And with what skills? And with what range of abilities and experience? And are we talking about remote or hybrid? And at that very high level, even before those decisions are made, the question needs to be asked, okay, what about this greatest intangible on your balance sheet, on your profit and loss, which is the people? And, and now that we can define the ROI of HR, and we can, those decisions need to be made early. So it's proactive rather than reactive. So the, the HR strategy is informed by the people strategy, which is informed by the organizational strategy and vice versa. I just keep coming back to I want, why, if we have the data, don't we use it? And, and I'm just reflecting on a conversation I had with a client a few weeks ago. Um, and I went in on the assumption that they didn't have certain data because they weren't using it. So I assumed they weren't, they didn't have it because of the way they were making decisions. Um, but when we drilled down, they absolutely had the data. Uh, and my question to them is, so what is the data telling us? And the answer was, I don't know. We haven't bothered to look at it. So I keep going around in what you're saying, David, around the, well, if the data is available, we either have the argument that the data is not available. And then and, when the data is available, yeah. we don't look at it. <laughs> how do we change? How do we break that? Well, I think it goes, unfortunately, it goes deeper than that. Be people aren't asking the question about purpose or objective. What's, what, why? Why do we need it? And I think we dare not start with the data. We have to start with the issues and the problems and difficulties. So when I go and see a CEO, I do not talk to him about the standard. I don't talk to him about data and metrics. I say, how's business? And they go, oh, and how's your strategy? <laughs> Wonderful. And what are your problems? No, we haven't got any problems. I said, come on. You know, what do you keep talking about at board level? Uh, what, what are those issues which you haven't fixed yet? Mm. Well, actually, do you know what? And we go down, and it's usually HR and technology, and, and we bring the two together. So we've got to start with where it hurts. What are the problems? What are the issues? And I talk to many, many HR people every week. I usually have 15 to 20 meetings a week, and there are three big discourses at the moment, yeah. Charlotte. One is mm. diversity, one is engagement, and the other is staff turnover. And they're all linked and, uh, and, and those are the things that keep mm. HR awake, but also they're the things that keep the CEO awake. So we have to start with where they're hurting. And if they say, right, staff turnover, I say, okay, well, what's your average annual staff turnover for middle managers? And they say, I think it's about 14 or 15%. And I say, now, diversity, um, how many of these kind of people and how many of those kind of people? And then we talk about the gender pay gap. And I said, and what are you doing to improve that? Oh, it's really good. We've improved it. And I said, okay, that means you cheated. You put one female at the top and that tilts the... They said, how do you know that? I said, well, you know, so 
I, I think we need to take, I'm a professional skeptic and I look at the data and then I triangulate it against other information from other departments. I'll give you another example on staff turnover. If you ask the uh, CHRO, how many people work here? That's a good question. How many people work here? And they say, they give you a number. I talk to the CFO, it's a completely different number. Yeah. And I, there are many reasons for that, but it's calculated differently. The HR person calculates on the first day and the last day. The CFO calculates on the day after the last day mm. because on the last day they're still being paid. And that's just a silly example. People are, have access to the data. So we need to ask what the purpose is, what's the reason, what do we want to do with it? And then we can use let me give you a further example. I know that um, many organizations, they use, particularly mm -hmm. big organizations, they use um, HR information systems. And I was asked to do a, a piece of work a few years ago. They said, right, we want you to recalibrate our metrics against the standard. I said, fine. We took it away. It was a big job. And obviously, it covers the whole thing from talent acquisition to diversity and health and safety and staff turnover and the whole piece but at least a third of the standard was not being met because those are the qualitative data. Example, um, leadership. There's three metrics in the standard for leadership. Span of control, leadership development. So span of control is very easy. Span, uh, leadership development, who's been on which programs mm -hmm. and was it worth it and did they have an income? But the third one is called leadership trust. It's very easy to measure leadership trust because there are uh, surveys and instruments available free of charge on the internet, but most organizations don't measure that because they don't really want to know the results. Now, when people leave an organization, yeah. they'll say, why are you leaving? Are they, oh, pay, promotion, prospect. Not a bit of it. Most people leave most organizations because they cannot stand that toxic manager anymore. Whereas if you measure leadership trust... You don't leave it to the exit interview. You have regular staying interviews. And increasingly, organizations are now uh, looking at how we can identify those people are making the greatest contribution to the organization. That's very easy to do. And then looking at how we can keep them, enable them, empower them, develop them, so they continue to make that contribution. So instead of waiting until they've nearly left, you make sure mm. they stay. And that, all of that is very much part of inclusion. I absolutely agree. And I was just thinking about the stay interviews because we have lots of conversations with clients around the purpose of a stay interview um, and, the, and the information that can bring you that an exit interview or something may not give you. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, David, because I think a lot of people or a lot of organizations jump into the realm of, well, why do a stay interview because doesn't my employee opinion survey or my engagement survey give me that information? How would, how would you react to that? There are many, many uh, engagement surveys and interviews. Um, some are better than others. Um, some are only done once a year, mm -hmm. and it's, it's 18 months out of date. Yeah. Um, I believe it has to be done more frequently. And I recently saw one, which is to do with touching the pressure points, which only takes 20 seconds and can be done several times in one day. 
um, they are very sophisticated now. If you wait until the end of the year or um, if you wait until you just give them a bonus, that will skew the results. Um, engagement surveys, employee satisfaction surveys are, can be good, um, but unfortunately many mm. people are miffed by how many surveys they have to fill in, uh, plus all the obvious things about people putting down something which they think you want to hear and all that that kind of silliness and bias. Um, there are some good ones around, but they have to be used judiciously and in collaboration with other data you're getting from other sources at other times. Um, and as I said, if you leave it to the exit interview, it's mm. already too late. Way too late. Way too late. Um, I want to change tack a little bit because uh, you talked about you talked about SMEs a little bit earlier and um, them being the employer for many of our people, specifically in the UK. Um, they're a big employer um, on the whole. I'm curious about your thoughts of what is it we generally need to do within our within the HR profession to increase the level of professionalism within it? Um, if I were in charge and I had the magic wand, I would uh, embrace the expertise and the experience and the qualifications of those who, who lead the profession. Mm -hmm. So the fellows of the CIPD, for example, people who've been around a while, and that's an untapped market. I'm also belonging to something else called the Guild of HR Professionals, um, who see it very much as their role to mentor and coach those who are new to the profession. Um, I've, I've recently been doing a piece of work with a young lady who's, um, she's only ever worked in tiny companies, but off her own batch, she wanted to do the mm. level three certificate in HR. So I was obviously helping her with her career and her CV, and I was asking her those questions. Why do you want to get into HR? And, and to start with, she was negative. She, she said, oh, I can't stand the call centre anymore. Um, so, but she, she was then able to say why she wanted to become um, a people person and a, an HR professional. And I really enjoyed, um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I enjoyed helping her to help herself develop a career pathway uh, to and to embrace professionalism and the qualifications in for her own sake, but then this would obviously mm -hmm. rub off on on the organisation. And to be frank, it doesn't matter how big the organisation is; they will benefit. So even if it's just a little ten-person family-run factory or graphic designer or shop, they would definitely benefit from professional mm -hmm. HR practices across the board. Because yeah. if you don't. Yeah. It's expensive. I mean, in some areas, it's illegal. But in, if you're not going to do it properly, um, it's expensive. To, to replace one member of staff costs yeah. about three quarters of their salary. Whether they're a middle manager or a shop worker or a fireman, whatever it happens to be, it's expensive. And that can obviously hit the bottom line. And in many instances, that's why organisations went belly up. Yeah. during the COVID lockdown. Um, I know it depends on the industry. So, for example, in hotel, catering, leisure and tourism, the turnover is 150%. But how about tracking it? How about tracking it across the industry or quarter on quarter? 
And, and that's where the evidence, that's where the metrics come in. So even a small, or especially a small company, where the margins are tight, cash flow is, is very small, um, if you're not going to do it well or professionally, yeah. um, that's the way towards ruin, I think. And I think it's those those types of messages, David, that are so important for organisations, regardless of size, who may think that they don't need somebody to do this work. You've quite rightly highlighted that it can be financially detrimental, can't it? And I think that goes back to that metrics and that numbers and the the business element around this, around why the role that people have within HR is so, so important and how critical it is to have professionals doing that. Um, there's one other area that, well, there's two areas I want to touch on before we finish, but one links into what you've just mentioned there. But it's also the fact that H, uh, HR roles and people working within HR are more focused as well on that whole engagement and culture piece, exactly what you mentioned at the beginning around your experience and your knowledge um, and expertise around culture change. I'd love to get your thoughts on the impact that the data insights can have on cultural change. Because you mentioned earlier on about focusing too much on the stories or the individual experiences. Um, from your point of view, can cultural change be effective if you don't have the data insights and the metrics to support them? Of course it can, but it will be short-lived. Um, let me just choose a, a, um, a couple of examples um, when it's been done wrongly. The first one was P&O Ferris. You may remember the story about P&O Ferris, how the chief executive wanted to save money, and so he sacked all the workers. He gave them two hours' notice, and some of them were actually escorted off the ships, and they just got a text message saying goodbye. And then, as you know, um, he engaged a lot of agency staff at half the pay. Now, it could be argued that that saved a lot of money. However, two days or two weeks or two months later, the reputation was shredded. Mm -hmm. And what about the customers? So people can make decisions and people regularly do make decisions based on uh, a whim, um, looking at the bottom line, what the chairman says, uh, something they heard from a friend on the golf course, uh, a little book they read or a, a two-day conference they went to. They People make these decisions without any kind of rationale or backing it up or figures or trends or analysis. So people make decisions, but in terms of sustainability, we need to have the data. We need to have the analytics and the metrics. Mm -hmm. And um, talking of sustainability has reminded me that um, going forward, I think people can do a lot worse than use the uh, sustainability emphasis that's come out of the United Nations, the Sustainability Development Goals. Um, my organization, for example, we donate 10% of our net profit to pursuing those goals. That's not because, just because it's a nice thing to do, but it is. But it also helps us address things like modern slavery. Yeah. And I actually addressed that issue recently in a webinar where we were discussing um, diversity and looking to the future, the, the next generation of standards. 
and I brought up about modern slavery. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, what about your supply chain? And, and what about the gig economy? And what about, you know, do you actually hand on heart know and can say that every single person who works for you has got a right to work? And, and on and on and on. So I think it's making it real. Um, it's touching where people are squirming, to be frank. They don't want you to ask those kind of questions in order to bring to light and use the data to make the decisions. I think they're I think they're really great points about making people squirm because a lot, as you say, a lot of people, certainly a lot of leaders, don't like to find themselves in that situation. Um, I I keep saying I've just got two questions, but I've just got two questions left. Really quick ones. The first one is earlier on you mentioned you're doing a PhD at the moment. What is what is what additional information or insight and learning is the PhD going to bring into our environment? This is a unique PhD. It's based on the American model of um, uh, organizational-based modules. So it's not just, oh, right, here's your topic, go away for five years and write it up. No, these are work-based modules to do with the whole of HR, and it's looking at the evidence-based HR approach. So there will be data that can be gained from surveys and doing empirical surveys and work with staff. It will be balanced by the academic stuff, but then it's also mm -hmm. balanced by some other areas where we can say, you know, so what? Does this stack up? And uh, mm -hmm. there are people on that particular program from the BBC and the nuclear um, energy industry and local authorities. Uh, so it, it affects um these are people at the top of the profession who are wanting to say, right, where do we, what's the next step in terms of HR? And it is about yeah. finding and disseminating uh, data and triangulating that against each other. Brilliant. And my final, it really is my final question, David, I promise. But we have touched so much. We've talked about the evidence-led approaches. We've talked about the seat at the table for HR We've, we've touched on those various elements around culture, engagement, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and, and, and also that professionalizing our industry. If there was one wish you had out of all of that, that in the sec next six months, something significantly would change, what would, what would that wish be? Do you know, Charlotte, you're good at asking the difficult questions and leaving the best to last. Now, that's so good that because I haven't got a ready answer. What would I do? What would I do? What would I do? Um, it's about using frameworks for change, and, and the ISO framework is, is as good as any. It's about, mm -hmm. yes, applying the information and the knowledge we've received through data. It's becoming more professional because at least half the people in HR have not got any qualifications at all. So it's, it's becoming more professional. Um, and for those people who are in the CIPD, for example, they need to upgrade their membership to a higher level. It's about CPD. Um, I think in the end, however, it is mostly about us blowing our trumpet and saying we're here, we're here to stay, and we are actually quite good, and now we can prove it. Because in the end, it's about proof. That's what I would hope for. And, and just feeding Sorry, into that, that the you HR meant... department away from the passive, reactive, transactional approach so that we can lead organizational strategic transformation and change. 
Yeah. And, and and I was just jumping in saying you mentioned around CPD and that continuous professional development that is so, so important. Um, I think I think you're a role model for that, aren't you? You know, given that you're you're working on your PhD at the moment. So I am really looking forward to hearing the outputs of that. I'm sure our listeners will love those insights and perspectives Great. Uh, and think a little bit differently around how they need to focus on that evidence led approach. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been it's been delightful and as ever. And if the listeners want to take this further, just look me up or HCM Metrics on LinkedIn or a website and we can continue the conversation. Perfect. Perfect. David, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Inclusive Disruption podcast. To stay updated on these insightful discussions, be sure to follow Charlotte Sweeney Associates on LinkedIn, X and Instagram. You can find our social media handles in the podcast bio of your streaming platform of choice. For even more insights, don't miss out on our newsletter, Inclusive Disruption, available on LinkedIn under the same name as this podcast. Do you have a burning topic in mind you'd like us to explore? Reach out and let us know what you're curious about. Your ideas might just shape our next episode.